0: Well, good morning. morning. What a joy it is to be together as a church family starting the Advent season, and uh, to be here to worship and to fellowship together to celebrate the arrival of the world's salvation in Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God who became incarnate. And we're here to praise uh, God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord's purchased our salvation on His cross. He reigns in heaven now over all things for the benefit of His church, and He will return shortly to be King forevermore. So, our Advent series this year uh, is entitled, The Christmas Story, and uh, we're going to be looking at uh, the four basic passages in the New Testament that we enjoy pretty much every Christmas season. And so, today we'll be looking at Luke 1 and uh, the announcement given to Mary Next Sunday, the second week of Advent, we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 1 and a prophecy that was given to Joseph, and then our third week of Advent, we'll be back in Luke, Luke chapter 2, uh, considering the wonder at the birth, and finally, in the fourth Sunday of Advent, Matthew chapter 2, worship by the world. And so, basically, it's Luke 1 and 2, and it's Matthew 1 and 2, so you can read ahead and prepare yourselves. Uh, to to study these passages together. But let me pray for us before we begin. Lord, we thank You so much for uh, Your Word, which teaches us about uh, our Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation and the richness that we have in Him. And as we're going to be reconsidering such familiar passages to all of us that mean so much to us, we ask that You would cause our minds and our hearts to be refreshed in new ways, as we hear Your Word and as we study Your Word, that we would be again just marveling at the incarnation of You, Lord Jesus, the Eternal Son. We pray this morning that as we look at Luke chapter 1, that You would do this even today. Amen. So, you can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26, and I'll read that passage to you. But what we'll see here is Luke You know, his desire is that our assurance and our conviction for who Jesus is and what he's done just continues to grow as we observe the plan of God being fulfilled as you read through the Gospel of Luke. So Luke 26 and following says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. The big idea in this passage is that the Davidic Messiah has finally come, and more than that, he is actually the Holy Son of God. And Luke takes great joy in his gospel in re-announcing this incarnation of the Holy Son of God even to us who are looking at it today. So, the outline of the passage is very simple in verses 26 to to 33. Not only is Jesus to be the promised greater King of David, which is what that section is about, but then further in verses 34 to 38, we learn that he would actually be recognized as more than this, as the eternal, holy Son of God. So, let's enjoy Gabriel's announcement to Mary together about the birth of the Son of God. So, we see again in verses 26 to 33 here, the promised greater son of David who would come and be king. And so, the subsection here is pretty easy. Gabriel appears to Mary, I mean, it's a pretty easy outline, 26 to 27. And then Gabriel speaks to Mary, And verses 28 to 33. And so, the appearance takes place right away, and he says, in the sixth month, that's referring to actually Elizabeth, but we'll get to that story a little bit later. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So again, as I mentioned, you know, Elizabeth, that story's sort of already taken place a little bit in, in, in the book of Luke, and you can read that on your own, but it's in the sixth month then that of, of, of Elizabeth that Gabriel comes, he's sent from God to appear to Mary and make an announcement. Now, Mary, at this point, is a young woman. She's probably about 14 years old, and she's truly a virgin in the understood sense of the term, and she's actually engaged to Joseph, who's a, a few years older than her, most likely, Or rather, the text says in in our English, the betrothed, uh, which is a stronger bond actually than engagement in our culture. And uh, to be in a betrothal stage, it's part of a a two-step process to marriage in that uh, time and culture. And so since they're betrothed, they are legally considered husband and wife, but the consummation of the marriage usually takes place about a year later when the husband would take uh, his wife to his home. And so, in other words, there's already been an agreement between the families made at this point. Uh, it's been reached by everyone involved, the dowry's been paid, and legal rights have actually been established. And so, if uh, he dies, she is considered a widow, and if there's some kind of a dissolution that takes place, it is actually termed and referred to as a divorce in this time frame in this culture. Now, Mary's ancestral roots are debated, uh, you may be familiar with that debate, but whether she comes from the priestly line or a kingly line or some kind of a mixed uh, ancestry. But the issue here is not hers, it's Joseph, and Joseph is clearly of the line of David, and that's the issue, especially in the Gospel of Luke. It's a preparation for the announcement that Gabriel is going to be making down in verses 32 and 33. This lineage is very important to the Gospel of Luke because it's mentioned five times in the opening chapters of Luke. You find it all over the place. You find it here. You'll find it later on in chapter 1, verse 69. You'll find it a couple, two places in chapter 2, verses 4 and 11, and also at the, in chapter 3, verse 31. It's very important that even though Jesus is not physically descended from Joseph, he is still his full, rightful, legal air. Now, at this point in the story, and we are reading a story, we surely have in our minds another prophecy that was alluded to this morning, and uh, Isaiah 7.14, and and maybe, of course, Luke had it in his mind and knew we would as readers of the gospel as well. But no serious effort is made at this point to put Isaiah 7.14 in front of us like Matthew would in chapter 1, but more will come later in the story. Isaiah 7.14 is, therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign, Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. And so, Matthew in chapter 1, which we'll look at next week, says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. So, Luke's stress is upon the fact that, Dave, that Jesus is from David's line, and his stress will be on the fact that He is not just the Son of David, not just the Son of David everyone's looking for, but more than that, He is the divine Messiah, Jesus Christ. But more on that in a moment. So, Gabriel then speaks to Mary in verses 28 to 33, and the exchange goes like this. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Mary, in a very personal way, saying, Hail, highly favored one. So, even he is astounded at her being this special object of blessing, of grace from God, as we should be as well. God has decided to favor her, perhaps with the highest of all human privileges, to actually bear the divine Messiah. And God would be with her, the promises made, for all that's necessary, for all that's to come, even though she doesn't even know what's to come yet, the birth, Jesus' life. He would give her grace and be with her during all these times and observing the suffering and the death and, of course, being a witness to the resurrection as well. Mary is perplexed, um, the curious ways of God's, why such, why, such a, why such a greeting of blessing? What actually is this angel going to be doing to me? She has found favor with God, which means that she would be favored without any request on her part. The idea here is not that somehow she merited God's grace, as some would have us think, but undoubtedly she was a very godly young woman, but she was still, like all of us, born in sin and a sinful human being, and she too would need Jesus Christ to be her savior. Gabriel announces to her that she would bear a son and name his name Jesus. Jesus was actually a very popular name at the time. And Matthew tells us what the meaning of the name is, where he says in Matthew 21, and she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, which means, for it is he who who will save his people from their sins. That's what his name means. Now, when you have announcements like this of these angels coming, saying things like this, you think through some of the Old Testament when these types of experiences happen, and you know that this automatically communicates that whoever's going to be born is going to be some kind of a great person, a great leader. Now, of course, in this particular case, there's way much more that is intended than just that. Jesus would be called the Son of the Most High, the Son of the Most High God. He'd be recognized for who He really is, and He would be given the throne of His father David, He would reign over His people, and His kingdom would be forever. This is really striking language. To us who are so used to reading it every Christmas and many other times during the year, we might miss it, but it's really striking language. It's clearly speaking of the of the promised Son of David, the one everyone's waiting for, who would be the Messiah, but then it's also spoken in such a way that it's written very clearly about His divine nature, which would be even more astonishing to be the Son of the Most High. This Messiah would not only be the Son of David, but He would be the very Son of God. And so here we even have at the beginning of Gospels Luke, the Gospel of Luke, what we would later come to understand and talk about as the one person of Jesus Christ having two natures, fully human and fully divine. You know, this is the greatest mystery and the greatest miracle in history, is the incarnation. It's completely beyond our imagination and comprehension. But yet, that's part of our worship, is to try to plumb the depths of it and the meaning of it. And that's what we'll be doing throughout our Christmas series this year. So, the fulfillment to David of this greater son who would have an eternal throne, you think back to the original context and and the the statements back in 2 Samuel that were made, I mean, it would have been immediately seen in, in the reign of Solomon, David's son, But yet at the same time, it would be understood that that's not really fully it, but it would be predictive in all of his glory of the one who would come, and Solomon in his glory pictures the majesty of the highest king and the true Messiah to come. His reign was a prophecy in and of itself. And this is why Jesus would often go about reminding people in these very words something greater than Solomon is here, and he's referring to himself, because Jesus would be the one who would inherit the throne of God, establish the kingdom, and reign forever as this Davidic king. So, you can enjoy this parallel on your own. So, here's some passages for you to write down. If you're taking notes, you can look at on your own. 2 Samuel 7. And then four psalms, Psalm 2, 72, 89, and 110. 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 2, Psalm 72, Psalm 89, and Psalm 110. And as you read these, you will get a picture of who this greater king would be that was promised so long ago that Gabriel comes and announces he's here, he's Jesus Christ. And the house of Jacob... Would be great. In fact, according to Luke, it would be enlarged beyond all imagination because one of the great themes and major themes of Luke's gospel is the inclusion of the nations into the people of God. And you can read the gospel of Luke, read the book of Acts. It's all about the growth of this kingdom, and this new kingdom would have no end once it came. When Jesus brought it, it would continue to expand as he reigns from on heaven, and nothing's going to stop it. The crucifixion didn't stop it, of course. The church's persecution throughout the history of the world doesn't stop it. It's all part of the plan. And one day, Jesus will come and bring the kingdom in its open glory for the world to marvel and for us to participate in. So listen to the prophets. What has been fulfilled? What is being fulfilled? of the Lord of hosts, will accomplish this. Also in Micah, chapter 5, verse 2 and following, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has born a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel and he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will remain, because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. And finally, in Daniel seven fourteen, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and His kingdom is one which will never be destroyed. These prophets fulfill out some of the words of the prophets that's spoken here by Gabriel. Jesus would be the great Davidic king, the one to come, yes, the one who's been promised and everyone has been wondering and hoping for, but not only this, He would exceed expectations because He would reign as the Son of the Most High as the eternal Son of God who had become man. So we see, even in this announcement by the angel, that the Lord Jesus, we see Him for who He was in eternity past and who He is and who He's going to be when He returns again. And we're filled with joy joy because we belong to this kingdom, because the Holy Spirit has worked faith in us to have faith in Jesus Christ and all that He did for us in salvation. You know, Mary is important as pastors too, as we'll find out when we get to the very end, but she's a picture even at the beginning of the story of those who receive free grace and membership in the kingdom. And Mary leads us to reflect upon what it means to be favored by God, to be made recipients of God's grace with, without any merit of our own, that He decides out of His free choice to put grace upon our life. And more of this will come out as we Finish out the story this morning. But the defeated Messiah has finally come, and he's the Holy Son of God. And that's where we go next. He would be recognized and called the eternal Holy Son of God. And so in verses 34 to 38, we see this. We see Gabriel explains the process. You remember the question? You know, how's, what's, what's this all about? And then Gabriel explains the process in verses 34 to 37. And then at the very end, The story concludes with Mary's exemplary response in verse 38. So looking again at the text, Mary said to the angel, verse 34, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. So Mary accepts that it's going to happen, whatever this blessing is, and she's willing to take it on, not knowing all the details. She only wonders at how this is going to come about because she's virgin. Literally in the Greek it says, I do not know a man, and that present tense indicates she's never known a man either. It's not a reference to some vow of perpetual virginity that some might want to suggest. And Matthew himself indicates that this was only, she was only remained a virgin until Jesus' birth, and then he had four brothers and at least two sisters. You can read that stuff on your own. But we might wonder at her question. I mean, you think more about this question, it's really an odd question in in one way, because, I mean, she's already betrothed, and she's going to be married soon enough, and presumably, you know, even in our culture, but especially in that culture and time, I mean, it's very likely she's going to get pregnant pretty soon. So why not just consider the announcement of Gabriel, an announcement that something's going to happen next year? Now, as you can imagine, many, many scholars have come up with many, many different answers uh, to this and this, this, this thinking through this, but we also have to remember that we most likely have a condensed account anyway of what took place, and the traditional understanding is simply that Mary was thinking of the immediate situation like we would expect, and included in this explanation is Luke's intention that we actually now do think about Isaiah 7.14, that she's a virgin, it's brought up again. Behold, a virgin shall be with a child and bear a son, and she'll call his name Emmanuel. And so Gabriel's answer to her is very direct, very simple. It should also be noted that it's Trinitarian. Did you catch that? The Holy Spirit will come upon her, the power of the Most High would overshadow her, and this would result in a holy child most appropriately called the Son of God. Overshadow here has no sexual overtones, but it speaks of His covering in His glorious presence. In other words, it's like the glory in the days of the tabernacle. And how God would speak about how that's how He was with His people. And it even points to a story later on in the Gospel of Luke, uh, the transfiguration, when Peter, James, and John go up on a mountain with Jesus, and it says a cloud overshadows them. It's the same kind of an idea. And then that's where they hear, of course, the voice saying, this is my beloved son from the Father. That's what's being spoken about. And therefore, it says, because of this, therefore Jesus is, and the ESV here is the best translation, in my opinion, he shall be called holy, dash, the Son of God. He shall be called holy, the Son of God. And of course, holy, it can have different meanings. It could just simply mean he's set apart for something special. It could mean, more, probably much better in this context, that he would be the pure one. Perhaps it's even hinting how he would be the head, the second Adam, the head of a new humanity. But then maybe best of all, here it's a reference to his absolute purity inherent in his being that this is deity become and taken on flesh as the Son of God. So now when we talk about this virginal conception, it's not really the virgin birth is just a short way to say it, but it's really the virginal conception that's the amazing piece, um, declares to us who Jesus really would be. So He would be an absolutely sinless, holy human, but yet He would be the absolutely deity, the Son of God. Now, of course, it didn't have to happen this way for Him to be sinless or to be the God-man, the incarnate God. There are certainly other ways for God to have done this, and, you know, many more natural ways that we could probably even think upon on our own, or more supernatural and, and amazing ways that He might decide to do it and dazzle us with something else. But the virginal conception and the birth is an important historical fact And, of course, it's significant, most importantly, because it's prophetic fulfillment. It fulfills the prophecy given. But even though it's not absolutely necessary for this to be the case, it's so that we understand Him to be exactly who He is, that He is the chosen one, that He is the one chosen by the Father. He is fully God, He is fully man, united in one person. And He is the Holy One, that is that He is sinless. And if you really want to get into some interesting theology and how the Holy Spirit prevented the imputation of sin. Now, there's a lot of theology behind this passage. There's a lot to meditate on, more importantly. And there's a lot to worship Jesus for by meditating on these things, because it's all here. The eternal Son of God becomes man, the greatest mystery of all, greatest miracle, we have Jesus Christ, one person, two natures, fully divine, fully human, perfectly sinless, without sin in His being, who could then be the one who could actually save sinful human beings. Amazing. And, you know, Mary doesn't even ask for a sign, In in this, of course, she's exemplary because most of us ask for signs even after you see a sign, and I don't know why that is, but I guess that's the way it is. So, but Gabriel gives a sign anyway, and he just simply says to her, well, you know, Elizabeth, you're, you know, she's in her sixth month. In verse 26, that's how the story began. So, Elizabeth experienced a miracle too, you know, John's birth is a miracle, she conceived, and gave birth in barrenness and old age. Mary's miracle, of course, that she experienced is greater with a conception and a birth without even having human sexual relations. So Elizabeth's current pregnancy, you see, is proof, if you will, signifying that truly nothing is impossible with God. If he can do that with Elizabeth, then he can do what he's just announced to you. And it should remind us of these very same words, the very similar words that were spoken to Abraham and Sarah about Isaac's birth in the Old Testament and how they promised the dawning of a a new age in the history of redemption at that time. And and now they promise and announce a, a new age in the history of redemption with Mary and Elizabeth here. Genesis 18, 14 says, Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I'll return to you about this time next year and Sarah will have a son. And then we get to the end of the story in verse 38, and we read about Mary's exemplary response. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So Mary places herself as the Lord's servant, and she would remain in this position and this, de- this demeanor all the days of her life. She doesn't mention here the shame that she would have to endure, the risk she'd have to take for the will of God to be done in her life. So, she's at God's disposal whenever and however He pleases. How about us? You know, Mary has always been throughout the history of the church one of the foremost models of discipleship. That often gets overlooked, especially in the Protestant tradition, but Mary throughout church history has been seen as a model of discipleship because she was faithful from the very first to the very last. The only one. From the annunciation that we looked at to the cross. And you can read about it in all the gospel accounts, especially in Luke, presented as a disciple. And Jesus here of course, is recognized as the eternal Holy Son of God in verses 34 to 38. And we read this statement that nothing will be impossible with God. Now, of course, in context, we know was talking about the incarnation. But it should also lead us to think about some other things that, humanly speaking, are impossible, but somehow God gets them done. Namely, thinking about our salvation. That this very one, this Jesus, would accomplish. I mean, there are more, quote, impossible, unquote, things that God would yet accomplish through him. I mean, think about who we are as human beings. We are so sinful at the very core of our being, and out of that flows all these evil thoughts and intentions and actions. They even underlie everything good that we may do that we think is good and our world might call good. You see, the Scriptures say that we are truly dead in our sins and we are under the righteous wrath of God, ready to be revealed in all of His holiness. So you think about that. Oh, we're impossible to save. We're impossible to save. And some of us who have lived maybe really, horrible lives of sin might think that God could never save me. But God could and would save us by the sacrifice of His Son on the cross. And He would resurrect us spiritually from this this condition of being dead in sin to making us alive in Christ, as it says in the book of Ephesians. You see, Jesus is the perfect mediator Because He is the God-man, and because He is pure without sin, He could truly satisfy divine justice, and He could save the worst of all sinners. The Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 3, Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. He doesn't save us when we get our life back together. The just died for the unjust in order that He might bring us to God. So, we who trust in Him alone for salvation from our sin can truly have justification with God. The impossible happened, and eternal glory awaits us. Truly, nothing is impossible with God. And as we've seen even in our passages this morning, this Davidic Messiah was more than the Davidic Messiah. He was the eternal Son, so from this passage Luke wants our assurance, our conviction to grow, our faith to grow. That's the hope for outcome from looking at a passage like this. That we marvel at who Jesus is and how it all happened. And it's why Luke took such great joy in re announcing this the story of the incarnation of the holy son of God to us. Luke has done a couple things with the story already as he opens his gospel. You know, we're still in the introduction to the book. And so, you know, it won't take you that long to read the book. But if you're intrigued by the introduction, you should finish the book. But here at the very beginning, he does a couple things. One is he takes us into greater discipleship. You know, people say they want to follow Jesus. Well, that means being a disciple. So, if you're interested in being a disciple, read the gospel of Luke. And he even begins that way by giving you a perfect example of someone that you could look to as an illustration, and that would be Mary, the mother of Jesus. She's a model disciple of wonder. You know, disciples do that. They just sit around and wonder how great God is. That's one thing disciples do. She's a model of faith. She's a model of holiness, of subjection, of service, of of simply receiving God's grace. So, we should reflect upon our own lives and how we might struggle to be like her. I mean, when you read the text, I mean, don't you want to be able to just take God at His word? Do you want to just be able to give yourself up completely to His will for your life? Do you want to be blessed because you simply ponder and receive the grace He's brought into your life? These are really good spiritual attitudes to have as a disciple. And they go a long way You know, we're going to be on a transition together as a church over this next year, and we got a new year coming, and who knows what that will hold. But these discipleship attitudes are going to help us make it through this way, through it, to bring glory to God. So that's one thing that Luke is doing with this story. And of course, the even greater thing that he's doing by telling us all this is increasing our joy and our salvation by showing us precisely who this Jesus is because, again, it's the introduction to the book. It's an amazing introduction. There's so much stuff in here and all these little phrases and the theology that's wrapped up in them that you're wondering, like, how is He going to unpack all this? Well, if you read the rest of the Gospel of Luke, you'll come to understand more what all this really means, that He is the eternal Son of God, that Jesus is the greater Son of David, that He has a people and a kingdom, that He's reigning now in glory in heaven after His resurrection, after He purchased us on the cross, and He's going to be reigning forevermore in open glory when He returns. Jesus is the truly holy one, Luke also shows us. He's a sinless man, never has been one of those before, right? And He could save sinful humanity, He's truly superior to all others who claim they might be able to bring some kind of a salvation into your life. I mean, He's really the whole world's full and final and only hope. That's who Jesus is, according to Luke chapter 1. And that's really what Advent season is really all about. It's about enjoying the Christmas story. It's about all the joy and the wonder at who Jesus Christ is and who His Word here is tells us He is. So, let me pray for us. May God bless us. Lord God, we thank You so much for the Holy Scripture that You have given to us, that You've preserved through the centuries for Your church, that by it we have Your very Word that speaks Your very truth, that is empowered by Your Spirit and speaks to our souls, that enlivens our spirituality, And we pray this morning as a church that you would give us a greater amazement and a greater wonder at who you are, Lord Jesus, as the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, in all of your glory for all of eternity, yet becoming man, to save us from our sinful condition, the one who is holy, the one who is pure the one who is full of grace and mercy and peace for us. We pray that you would instill these attitudes of wonder and joy in us and cause us to walk faithfully as your disciples. And we pray all these things for your sake, Lord Jesus, so that you would continue to gain an increasing glory out of our own lives and out of this church, which is your church. And So we pray these things in your name. Amen.